where we're going to be. And for sake of time, I won't read the entire book of Colossians, but let me tell you about it just a little bit. It's a fantastic book of the Bible. All of the Bible is God's revelation of himself to man. It's God telling us who he is and what his will is for our lives. And specifically, the book of Colossians tells us a lot about Jesus Christ. It's filled with theology. It's filled with doctrine. It teaches one of the great doctrines called Christology, which helps us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The theme of this book of the Bible is the sufficiency of Jesus. In other words, he is enough and more for whatever we'll need in life. The Bible teaches us here that Jesus is not just prominent, that he's high on the list. The Bible tells us of Jesus that he is preeminent. That means he's the one and only. He tells us here he's preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in the church. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is preeminent in our salvation. He saves us. He sustains us. He strengthens us. This entire book tells us how great Jesus is. After that introduction, Paul begins to get very practical in this book of the Bible. And he says, in effect, if you know who you are in Jesus and understand what it is to truly be born again by faith into the family of God, your relationships will look different. He spends time in this book of the Bible sharing how we can do marriage right, how we can be effective parents, how we can do well on the job. It's amazing how practical salvation can be. It touches every part of our lives. And then we come to the last part of this book of the Bible here in Colossians chapter 4. The last eighth or so of this book. And I'll be honest with you, it appears as though when we read it in a moment, there's just not much here. Such a deep book of the Bible, so rich, filled with so much truth. And, and then we come to the last part of the book here. And for us, it's kind of like driving from where we live in San Diego to Phoenix. There's just not a lot in between. You've got to power through and, and uh, don't slow down. In my Bible reading, sometimes I come to texts like that, filled with a lot of strange names. And, and I'll just kind of power through. Sometimes even in my teaching, I'll come to a text and I'll think, boy, this doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of it. And I'll just make my way through. But how many of you today would agree with me that the Bible is the word of God? If you believe that, say amen. amen. How many of you would believe that God doesn't waste a single word in the Bible? Amen. So we have a rich, deep book of the Bible and we come to a conclusion that seems a bit out of place. And when that happens, we need to just have some basic principles of Bible study. And I, when I came to this, had to go back and say, all right, there's something here. There has to be. God doesn't waste any words. So I had to start over and say, all right, who wrote this book of the Bible? Well, God used the Apostle Paul to write this book of the Bible. He was in a prison cell in Rome. To whom was he writing? Well, he was writing to a group of believers who'd gathered together and, and had, had started this church, and he was writing to them in the city of Colossae. All right, what do we know about Colossae? Well, if we study history, we know that it was in a part of the world where East meets West. It was a place where ideas came and, and converged. It was an interesting part of the world. It was a place where spirituality was accepted, but the idea of Christ alone as the sufficient one was not accepted. It was a place where pluralism or the blending of religions or philosophies was accepted, but the simplicity of the gospel message was not. It was a place that called for tolerance in all things, yet they were incredibly intolerant of true followers of Jesus Christ. And in a sense, Colossae wasn't that much different than the world in which we're living in today. Sure, Paul wrote this book of the Bible to deal with some issues, some problems even in that church, but his desire and to just slam them and move on quickly. It was his goal to help them to live 
for God and to keep moving for God. And when I revisited that purpose in this final section of this great book of the Bible, I began to see that some of the names that Paul's going to mention, that sounds so strange. And, and some of the statements he'll make, they're not random. They're not out of place. It's not as though Paul's wrapping up a letter or a phone call by saying, all right, our family sends our love. And, and to tell everyone there we said hi. There was more to it. I really do believe what it is we find in the closing of this book of the Bible are some things that help us understand what was so very important to the Apostle Paul, important to God, and should be important for us. Paul was a real man writing to real people who had real needs, and he intended for this letter to address those needs. And so with that in mind, I want us to jump into our study today. We'll get to work, as I like to say. Uh, if you're able this morning, I'd like to invite you, if you would, to join me in standing out of respect for the reading of God's Word. Thank you again for letting me be here. Thank you all for being here. And uh, we're going to look today, Colossians 4, beginning in verse 7. The Bible says, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. Marcus, sister, sister son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, he come unto you, receive him. Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers which have been a comfort unto me, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are at Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren, which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. And I want you to allow your attention to be drawn to the end of verse 18 and consider those words where Paul closes by saying, grace be with you. Father, we're very grateful to be in church today. We thank you for the freedom we have to be here. God, we are thankful that you have inspired the writing of your word. You've preserved it and that by your power, you can reveal it. May our hearts be open. May we not go through motions today, but truly apply ourselves to learning. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. He was a man who was comfortable being alone. In fact, there were long periods of time in his life where he was secluded. He'd use those times alone for the purpose of prayer and study, times to grow spiritually. But the Apostle Paul was a type A leader. He, he might have been a type double A leader. He was an alpha dog through and through. And he, he just loved the work of God and was active in working with people. In fact, if you were to read all of the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, it's amazing. He mentioned the names, specific names of over 100 different people. Just one chapter in the book of Romans, he mentions 26 different people. And here in the final verses of a relatively short book in the New Testament, he mentions the names here of 10 different people. We can really gain from that that Paul valued people. 
he valued the role of friendship. He wanted to be a good friend, and he wanted to have good friends in the course of serving God and, and living for him. And, and yet, really, it's in these words that we find some areas of emphasis in his life. As I said, this was not a throwaway portion of this book of the Bible. These were not empty words of conclusion. This was Paul really revealing to us in his heart some things that he valued in his life, in the lives of his friends, and certainly in the church in Colossae, values that he had. Now, as we look in this passage today, we're going to see, first of all, that Paul valued a culture of encouragement. Now, let's go back to the first verse we read together in verse 7. Paul writes here, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. Now, let's just stop for a minute. Paul introduces this man, Tychicus, and he tells us of Tychicus, first of all, he said he's a faithful minister. That means he's a dependable helper in the work of God. He goes on to say of this man that he's a fellow servant in the Lord. That tells us that Tychicus had fully given his life to God. And he said, let me tell you why I'm sending this esteemed co-laborer in the gospel work to you, church, in Colossae. He said, I'm sending them to you that he might know of your estate, know how you're doing, and that he might comfort your hearts. Now, the word comfort's a very important word for our understanding here. This word comfort means to alleviate sorrow or distress, to give emotional strength. It means to console. It means to encourage. The word encourage is this, to put courage in. Let me tell you today who needs courage, every one of us. We live in a world that is absolutely filled with fear. And there needs to be people in churches like this man who would be willing to put courage into the hearts of those around him. Paul so valued encouragement that he sent one of his best and dependable fellow servants to do what he could not do because he was in jail. But I want you to notice today how Paul did it. In writing this letter that would become a book of the Bible, he sends him with the letter. Tychicus goes to the church in Colossae, and uh, the letter is read to the church. Now, I don't know if your name were called out from the pulpit during a church service. It would probably get your attention, would it not? So here's Tychicus. He brings this book of the Bible that we call Colossians, and, and as it's being read, what does Paul do? He, he says, hey, Colossians, I'm sending you to be an encouragement. But as the letter's read, he hears that Paul is saying of him, man, he's a good brother. I love this guy. He's dependable. He's faithful. Don't miss this. Paul was encouraging the encourager who was going to give encouragement to those in need of more courage. Paul valued a culture of encouragement. He wanted it in his life. He wanted it in his friendships, and he certainly wanted it in the life of the church. And friends of all of the places in our lives, church should be a place where we can come to find the encouragement necessary to move forward. And if a church is to continue for God, it's vital that each of us do our part to give encouragement. Sometimes we evaluate a place on how we get encouragement, and we need to get it. But friends, let's make a decision to give encouragement to those in our lives. Many of you I know are very good at this. And I know that because for a lot of years I've had the opportunity during vacation seasons to come through here. And many of you have been an encouragement in my life. Many of you are very good at this. Yet I would imagine that a lot of you are similar to me and that you have a lot more positive thoughts about others than you share. And I think we can make our homes better places, our workplace more uh, impactful, our churches places filled with more love if we would be more diligent to make sure we have a culture of encouragement. This ought to be a goal for all of us. And then secondly, Paul shares here that he values a culture of family. Now in verse 9, we meet a man by the name of Onesimus, and 
We're going to hear more about him in a moment. But I want you to notice what Paul wrote about him. He said, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. He said, here's what I want you to know about him. He's a beloved brother. Now, we know what brother means, but beloved, when you hear that word in the Bible, it means you be loved. Okay, so he said, this man is a beloved brother of mine. Tychicus, he said the same thing about him. He was a beloved brother. Later in verse 14, he writes of Luke. He says, Luke is the beloved physician. In verse 15, he writes and he says, salute the brethren. Now, church, don't miss this. All of those terms were terms of endearment. They were terms of family. They were terms of connection. And friends, as a church, if we're to move forward, we can never see ourselves as an organization, as a group that hosts Sunday morning events, as a business that produces religious goods and services. You see, we are not just saved from our sins unto a relationship with God. It is the will of God that we understand we're to be saved into the body of Christ and to participate in church life. So we have to wonder, how do we do that? How do we develop a culture of family? I hope that's a question we'll all ask a little bit deeper in our hearts than we have before. How do we do that? Well, it's true. It can be done in a variety of ways. I think one great way would be involved in the life of your church as it comes to small groups, connection groups, whatever you might call them. I, I love auditoriums. I love the music we get to hear on a day like this. I love hearing preaching. I love preaching. There's something that happens in a preaching service that doesn't happen anyplace else. But there's a lot more that needs to happen in the life of a Christian that doesn't take place in a room like this with straight rows. We need to get in a room with circles where we can make sure that we know the names of others in there and they know our name and we hear their prayer requests and we share our prayer requests. Something wonderful happens in the life of a Christian when we opt into church life. It's wonderful to attend a church. It's much better to belong to a church. And so I think that's one great way. There's another great way that teaches us that we can really value a culture, a family. That's through serving together, through serving together. That's important. Some of you might know my brother, Paul. He's a pastor in Southern California, not too far from me. I know he's preached here. And uh, he's a great guy. I love him. And uh, sometimes he can be a little hard on me because I'm the little brother. And he makes sure I, I never forget that, you know. But he called me some time ago and he said, hey, Steve, I'm going to Cortez, Colorado. I'm going to host a retreat for pastors out on our family farm. And he said, I'd like for you to come. And uh, because you know the area a little bit, you can help me host it. And I think it would be good for you. And I said, man, Paul, that would be great. I think it would be good for me. And I'd be glad to help in, in any way I can. And then he said, and Steve, when you come out, I don't want you to be like a bump on a log just sitting there being quiet all the time. That's what he told me. Now, you'd have to understand me to understand why he said that. If you put me in a crowded room, I'll be among the most quiet people in that room. I'm not a guy that feels compelled to have to say things all the time. I'm just quiet by nature. It's how I am. And my brother was hey, don't come out here and just sit and be quiet. If you're going to help host, you're going to have to be friendly and talk to people. And I said, all right, I'll do my best. In fact, he recommended I read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People Before I Come to the Meeting. And uh, so I said, all right, I'll do my best. And, and uh, we got out there and I was trying to serve and help in, in ways I could. And uh, my brother walked up to me, the pastor I'd never met before. And he said, you two need to get to know each other. And then he just walked away. Well, if you are anything like me, that's the most awkward position you can possibly be in. It's, it's terrifying even. And so here I am, somewhat socially awkward, being introduced to another guy, and I was able to figure it out very quickly, he was socially awkward too. So we have two socially awkward guys who've just been commanded to have a conversation. So we had the only kind of conversation we could have had. It was a socially awkward conversation. And uh, we asked all the questions, so where do you pastor? How long have you been there? It was just shallow, empty conversation. We went through the motions, and we were both so happy when that conversation was done. Both of us were. And uh, nothing really good came from it. Later on that afternoon, 
we had about an hour break and there had been a lot of dead trees out there on the farm and, and uh, I'd cut a bunch of them up and I thought, you know, I'll split some firewood. And I would imagine if I were a lumberjack, I would hate splitting firewood, but I'm not a lumberjack. I'm a pastor and it's so cathartic for me to swing an ax as hard as I can and watch something just fracture. So I thought, I'm going to take this hour, go out there. And as I was walking out there, I had my gloves and an axe. And that pastor that I just could not connect with, he said, do you need some help? I said, sure, that'd be great. I went and got another set of gloves, another axe. And we went out there. Over the next hour, we laughed. We told stories. We got some work done. And what happened out there around some wood was something that couldn't happen in a coerced situation. A friendship was developed now, I don't know what it is about guys, but sometimes we don't do so good face to face. But when you put a shoulder to shoulder, sharing in a cause, a bond can be established. And so it is in the work of God. Serving together builds a bond. It's been my experience that most people get out of a church about what they put into it. And friends, make sure you're investing in ways that will allow you to enjoy a culture of family. Now, I want us to think of some of these names we read. I had a man in my church tell me one time of a name in the Bible. He said, Pastor, I think you've mispronounced that one. I said, I'm pretty sure I've mispronounced all of them, okay? So <laughs> we read these names, and I did my best. I don't want to be dishonorable to these people. But, but let's get to know some of these names that Paul just throws out there, because they're not unimportant. Let me just run through the names we find in this text, all right? In verse 7, we met, met uh, Tychicus. What do we know of him? Well, he was a pastor who carried Paul's letters to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Colossae. He delivered a letter for Paul to a man named Philemon. Onesimus, we meet him in verse 9. He was a run, runaway slave. Imagine this. He runs away from his slave over to, to, owner to Rome to get as far away as he possibly can, and he runs into a guy in Rome by the name of Paul, as in the Apostle Paul. Okay, Paul leads him to Jesus, and he says, you really need to go back and make things right. And uh, we now... Find him. He's a part of, of this church family, the family of God here. Aristarchus, we meet him in verse 10. He's only mentioned here as a fellow prisoner of Paul's. We do know more about him from other parts of the Bible. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, he was with Paul when a riot broke out. And then we find in Acts chapter 19, he was uh, in a shipwreck with Paul. What kind of friend would Paul had to have been for this guy to stick with him this long? Everywhere they went, and they got in trouble together. But here he is. He was uh, uh, faithful. We find in verse 10... Mark, he was a missionary. In fact, he went with Paul on his first missionary journey. He got discouraged. He said, I'm not going on anymore. It's too hard. Paul started out on his second missionary journey, and Mark said, hey, can I go with you? Paul said, no, you quit once. I'm not letting you go this time. They had a major falling out. Years later, seemingly, they reconciled, and Paul said of Mark that he was a blessing to him in the ministry. In verse 11, we meet Jesus, or justice. We don't know really anything about him. In verse 12, we meet Epaphras. He was a church planner. Great story. He's in Ephesus for one reason or another. Paul there is preaching as the church in Ephesus is getting started. This man gets saved, goes back to his hometown of Colossae, and he starts the church there. Verse 14, we meet Luke. Luke was used incredibly of God. He was a medical doctor, a companion to Paul, a great historian. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote more books in the New Testament than any other writer, but Luke actually wrote more words. He was used in a great way by God. We find in verse uh, 14, Demas, he was a missionary who incidentally later quit the ministry. In verse 15, we find someone by the name of Nymphus, and they hosted a house church in the home of Nymphus. We could say in our vernacular, maybe it would be similar to he hosted a, a small group or a connection group. 
In verse 17, Archippus, and he was a struggling new pastor. He probably took over for Epaphras when Epaphras went to Rome to see Paul. And then, of course, we meet Paul in verse 18. He was an apostle and a former persecutor of the church. Now, church, if you're still with me this morning, say amen. amen. You talk about an eclectic group of people. There was someone of every type of person just about in the world in this church that Paul mentions here. People of different ethnicities. There were pastors and lay people, wealthy homeowners, poor slave, but they all found commonality in Christ and in the cause of Christ and it brought them together as a family. They were followers of Jesus and the church was better for their collective involvement. You see, anybody in Colossae could have stuck their heads in the back door of where they had church and seen someone in the room like them. And everybody wants that in a church when they come in as a new person. They want to see someone like them. It's an important thing for a church to really reveal the demographics of their community. They say that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week, and that ought never be the case. We don't want to be like these uh, universities today that have a separate graduation for every little segment of, of demographics. I, uh, they say that's progressive. I, I would say, no, we came out of that a long time ago. That is the opposite of progressive. And, and if someone entertained an idea of segregation, they certainly wouldn't like heaven. It's not going to be that way there at all. Revelation 5, John wrote this. It says, they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. You see, it's a healthy church that looks like their community. Now, I want to say something to all of you collectively, and I hope to each of you individually. You are wanted here. And you're needed here. And you're appreciated here. Listen, every one of you brings a unique perspective, life experiences, gifts, talents, abilities. As, as, as all of you are woven into the mosaic, the fabric of this church family, it's a better place because you are in the room. This church in Colossae had a lot going on. A lot of powerful things were taking place because of the diversity that was found in the team that God was using there. God's desire for his children is that we would serve him together as a family. So we move on into verse 16. We're going to find here a culture of appreciation for the Bible. So the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Colossians under the inspiration of God. It, it becomes the infallible word of God included in the canon that we call the Holy Bible. And in verse 16, as Paul is writing here, he said, And when this epistle is read among you, here was the implication. Guys, you're going to read the Bible in church. Church is a place that has an appreciation for the word of God. It was always that way. The church was just getting started in Acts chapter 2. The Bible says there, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, where did the apostles get their doctrine? From Jesus, from the Old Testament scriptures they had. It was always based on, centered on the word of God. And any church that departs from being based in the word of God, they should surrender the title church because they've no longer continued to be one. You see, we're to believe what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see, it should be the desire of every church to appreciate God's word, to take God's word serious. We don't want to take ourselves too seriously. We get into big trouble when that happens. But we want to make sure we elevate and esteem the word of God. God's word. 
spent some time with your pastor. I love his heart for you and for this place. And I love that he has a heart for this church that extends far down the road. He's not a hireling. He feels as though God has him here. And when he dreams, he dreams long term. And uh, we talked about what he believes God would do maybe in the future here. And I love those kind of talks. And it kind of sent me back in my mind's eye to when our church was building out our auditorium years ago. And um, I'd gotten the idea. And I thought, you know, we're going to do this. So we had a prayer meeting in our auditorium when it was not finished. It was still just all rough, no drywall. And, and uh, I had herpes out to everybody. And I said, hey, why don't you write some prayers around here? Things you want God to do in this room. We wrote all over the floors and posts and beams and Everywhere he could look, our auditorium's literally surrounded in prayers, inviting God into that room to do what only he can do. And I saw a group of guys in our church talking, and I'm not sure whose idea it was, but they said, hey, pastor, we have an idea. I said, yeah, what do you got? And uh, they said, you know, you're going to stand right about here when you preach, aren't you? I said, yeah, about. And uh, I have a little more room at home. I'm all over the place usually. But I said, yeah, about right here, here generally. They said, here's what we want to do. We want to hollow that out real quick. And we want to put a copy of God's word, not in a disrespectful way, but in a prepared place so that when you're standing and preaching, that you'll literally be standing on the promises of God. And I said, guys, that's a good idea. And I was thankful that there were some men in our church who readily understood their pastor had nothing of value to say if it wasn't being based on, premised upon the truth of thus saith the Lord. And friends, that's what makes for a good sermon. There's a lot of different kinds of delivery styles and pastors have personality and all of that's fine. But ultimately what makes any sermon a good sermon is how biblical is that sermon. I've seen a lot of churches in my Christian life and some of them were really strong on truth. They just didn't seem very happy about it. It created something that, from the outside at least, really resembled arrogance. It's kind of like, we have the truth. <laughs> I've been to other churches that were exciting and joy-filled, and, and there was a lot going on, and, and I was grateful to see all of that. They just never seemed to get around to the truth. Very exciting. Just not much in the way of Bible. Hey, how awesome would it be to find a church that is joy-filled and vibrant and loves and believes and applies and lives biblical truth? That was a culture Paul valued. So we move on. I want us to see the fourth area we'll get to in verse 17, which is a culture of support. Culture of support. I better hurry up or my family will eat me alive for lunch today. All right, so we're going to wrap this up quickly. Verse 17, what do we find? And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Now, again, we believe Epaphras started the church in Colossae, had to leave to take care of some things with Paul. We believe Archippus stepped in, and we find here Paul in this letter saying, Say to Archippus, take heed of the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. Clearly, this pastor was struggling. We don't know what he was struggling with. Maybe they were going through a pandemic and people were mad. He said, we need to wear masks or we're not going to wear masks or we're going to be inside or outside. I don't know. I can't confirm or deny. Probably it was some of the issues Paul addressed earlier in this book. We, we don't know a lot of specifics here. So let's just deal with what we do know. What do we know? First of all, we know that the calling on Archippus' life was from the Lord because Paul wrote here his call was received in the Lord. So this was God's man for that church at that time. That's apparent from God's word. And, and then we also know he was to take heed to the ministry. That was a call. So he was to be the pastor of that church at that time. And I'm grateful for that. But I want you to notice what Paul did not do here. Paul did not say, hey, Pastor Archippus, get to work. Get it done. Get after it. That's not what he said. 
in a letter to an entire church that he knew the pastor would hear as it was being read, he said, church family, you tell Archippus to remember his calling is from God and that you understand that and esteem that appropriately and encourage him in the work of God. It's as though Paul is saying, hello, can't you guys see this guy's doing his best, but he's struggling? Why don't you come along beside and support and encourage? Oh, what a blessing it is in our lives when people go out of their way just to help us when we need that in the course of our lives. This last year and a half or so has been tough on all of us. But since I have the microphone on, I'll complain right now and you can complain later, all right? I've got to tell you, as a pastor conducting something resembling ministry in California during this season has been incredible. Um, nothing has been easy. You know, we uh, were, I think you guys were outside for a while. I think we were 18 weeks meeting in our parking lot. I think four or five times the police were called and nothing, nothing was being done wrong, but just the trouble was incredible. And uh, I think we'd all agree this last election season was probably the most bizarre in the history of mankind, you know, and that added its own uh, b bizarre feeling. And then all the racial unrest and we're in a very diverse area. And that, that brought tension instantly, not just into our community, but to a degree into our church family. And, and uh, it was just incredible. And there were so many decisions that needed to be made with information that was always changing. And I'd never been more keenly aware as a pastor. There was no decision I could make that our church was is going to get together and say, that was a wise decision there. No matter what I said on any of these issues, about half the people were going to say he's dead wrong, and the other people were probably going to say he didn't go far enough, and, and it was just a really bizarre season. And then, of course, there are the things we all personally go through. Many of you would have known my mom. She uh, came to church here, and uh, she was just fantastic. My mom uh, passed away during this season, and uh, she was just the best, you know, and those of you that, that knew my mom, she was just the best. Um, if there's any good in our family, it was in her. The rest of us are marginal at best, okay? <laughs> she, she was just, she was great, and, and mom passed away. So this whole season, it was just, it seemed like you couldn't catch your breath. There was never any footing. Everything was changing. And I'll never forget the Saturday. I was in Phoenix last fall, just after Thanksgiving, and I felt just lost in every way you can feel that way and lost also in a very real way. I was there in that parking lot to go to my mom's uh, funeral service, and maybe the memo would be given, but a lot of funerals, the family will pray together, and they're seating for the family, and I, I didn't get any of the memo on the organization of it, so I'm literally outside thinking, where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? And just profoundly sad, and you all know what that means. I'm just standing there thinking, man, can the bottom of life drop any more than it has already? What's going to happen next? And it was in that moment that I saw a group from our church in California pull in. And I knew they had to have gotten on the road at four in the morning. And I would never have asked anyone to be there. It's not like I said, hey, memo to church family. I'm struggling. Can someone provide some support? That's not what happened at all. 
But there was a loving relationship in the church family and people just came into my life. Friends, listen, I can't tell you a word that was exchanged that day before my mom's service, but it wasn't about words. It really had nothing to do with with what was said at that time. It was the fact that people showed up into my life. They stepped into my life. They supported me in a time when I was down. And, And I have the ability to do that for you and you have the ability to do that for one another. What a beautiful thing it is when Christians, they nurture this culture of support. Friends, you're going to encounter people this week and and you may not know the whole situation, but they may be in a time where they're as low as they can be and you can speak truth into their life and bless them. Speaking to pastors, Paul said in Acts 20, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. Pastors, support the weak. We can say, well, who are the weak? Well, God's strength is never really seen in our lives until we recognize we're all weak. God said, hey, pastors, don't forget in your ministry, you've got a job. Support people. To an entire church family, Paul wrote these words in 1 Thessalonians 5. He said, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Church, this is not a job for a select few. Each of us should develop this culture by doing what we can to bear one another's burdens because all of us have moments in time in life where quitting seems like a really good idea. And sometimes what stands between us and a horrible choice like that is a brother or sister in Christ who sees the need and they come into our life and they provide that support. It makes all the difference. And then finally in verse 18, it's not a mystery at all to me where Paul concludes here. Because the last area he emphasizes has to do with a culture of grace. A culture of grace. Let's look at the final verse here in Colossians. He says, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be with you, amen. Paul concluded this book exactly how he began this book. After introducing himself, giving his name in verse 1, in verse 2 of the first chapter of this book, Paul said, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The culture of a church that accomplishes what Jesus would have is a church that is rooted in the grace of God. Paul opens and closes with the words essentially saying, grace be with you. And friends, grace is undeserved favor from God. Grace is understanding that God wants to treat us not as we deserve, but as Jesus himself deserves. Grace is God's one way, unthinkable, unearnable, saving, sanctifying, sustaining love given to imperfect sinners like me and like you. Grace teaches us that Christ is always enough and more for anything we're going to encounter in life. It's a message we're to possess and study, but more than that, it's a message we are to preach and to share. A couple weeks ago, our church celebrated our 23rd anniversary. And um, it's fun to look back and see what God has done. So I was talking with your pastor yesterday. We were talking about some of the sermons we preached when we were getting started. He said, I couldn't preach some of them again. And I knew exactly what he meant. In those early days, I was doing my best, but you don't know a lot. And I thank God for those earliest days, but I'm glad we've grown out of some of that. I remember as we were getting started, I would dream about what the church would look like. And a lot of my dreams, to be honest with you, my imagination, it was something physical. It was what a building would look like or something like that. I don't know that that was sinful. It was probably pretty typical for a 26-year-old guy who had never been a pastor, never been in ministry. But I want to 
I want to tell you, I've got a long way to go. I certainly haven't arrived. But with 23 years of pastoral experience behind me, I have found that my dreams and goals are really coming into alignment with the dreams that we find in the heart of the Apostle Paul here. Dream of a church that has a culture of encouragement, a church that puts wind in the sails of those around us, a culture of family working together, each of us bringing our unique set of gifts and talents and abilities, a a culture that appreciates the word of God and in a culture that denigrates the idea of truth, we understand truth is absolutely found in God. A culture of support, that is a church that lifts up those who are struggling beneath the weight of life and a culture of grace where we comprehend the greatness of Christ and his love recognizing for us that his work on the cross was enough and more for whatever we'll encounter. Church family, imagine with me what a church with a culture like that could do for God. I'd imagine a church with a group of people dedicated to developing this culture in their own lives and then through their lives would be a church where you'd be blessed, where your family would be blessed. And you get enough people who've been blessed and are growing in the Lord, I would imagine that a church with a culture like that could make a massive impact in the community in which God has placed them. Our Father, we're grateful for these closing words in this wonderful book of the Bible. Lord, we're just glad to know that when